Well, Happy New Year. How are you all doing this morning? Yeah? Awesome. Good. Well, if you're anything like the average American, statistics say that in 2022, you are going to drink 736 cups of coffee. You're going to eat at 112 fast food establishments. You're going to go to the doctor four times. You're going to drive 14,263 miles, which is two-thirds around the globe. You are going to exercise for 96 hours, which would be equal to four days. You're going to spend uh, 882 hours on social media, which is 36 days. And you are going to work 1,801 hours, which is 75 days. So New Year's is a time where we begin to think about how we spent the last year, and then we reflect on how we might want to change and make changes in the new year. And so I want to ask this morning, what about you? What about me? Have we begun taking inventory of 2021, and we've begun thinking about how we'd like to see things a little different? In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for his fellow Christians, and he prays this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the workings of his great might." So Paul is praying fervently, and he's praying for Christians, and he's praying that their eyes will be open to see everything that they have. He's praying that they will come to understand that they've entered into a whole new kind of life, that they will enter into this whole new kind of life, a way of experiencing and recognizing uh, all they have in Christ. And so Paul is praying that they will live life in a way that is transformed. So let's just stop for a second and think about where we're at, okay? And let me make this practical. As I was thinking in 2022, I'm, I'm excited. There's some things I'm like, okay, I want to get this worked out. Me and Kenya have been already talking about, like, we actually were talking about what is the word we want to define 2022. Uh, the word we came up with is order. We want to get our lives into order. We just got married this last year. We got to figure out how to do our finances better. We got a lot of things we got to put in order. And it's easy for us as we begin kind of making these lists for us to think, you know, if only in 2022 I could get my finances worked out, or I can get some kind of relational issue figured out, or if I can get, you know, my health figured out, then I'm going to be in a better situation. But what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, I think applies to us, and this is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, if you could see, if you could see all you have in Christ, the riches you have in Christ, you would have a different kind of prayer. If you're a Christian, if you're thinking that if I just simply got these issues worked out, it's like a person who's inherited a massive, massive fund of money. You are a multi-multi-billionaire, and you're just thinking, how am I going to clean out the closet this year? How am I going to paint the living room? I want to learn how to make homemade tamales. It's like, dude, you've got a billion dollars sitting here. And that's what you're thinking about. Paul is praying that the Ephesians will open up their eyes to see all the wealth and riches they have in Christ. Why? Because it will be totally transformative for them. And we have riches. Our sins have been forgiven. If you're a Christian, you've been reconciled to God in Christ. You've been adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. You've been brought near, welcomed in. 
You've been given God's Holy Spirit to live within you, to guide you into a life of flourishing. You've been given the precious promises of God. God has made promises to us, including the promise that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that the body that we are in will not lay down. It will raise up again. Powerful, amazing truths that we have. And these are accomplished facts. These are realities. But just like the believers that Paul is praying for in Ephesus, many of us know these truths. I know these truths in my head. But they don't seem to impact my life. The patterns of my life and my thought seem to be deeply ingrained. And oftentimes the way I live or I think or I act is much more like a cosmic orphan or a practical atheist. I fret, I worry, I don't enjoy this experience of this new relationship with God, and my life is not much different. And so I'll just drink those 276 cups of coffee and go through 2022 just like everybody else around me. How do we break out of this? Well, we need some new rhythms, some new spiritual rhythms. We need to cultivate new disciplines whereby we can enter into this relationship with God and we can be rehabituated into this life that reflects these riches that we have in Christ. And so over the next few weeks, uh, we are going to be uh, going into some key practices in this series called Rhythms. Uh, Josh, Josh took this Sunday off. Uh, Josh, Josh had COVID, by the way, some of you may know, um, and he's better. It wasn't a debilitating COVID or anything like that, but he's better. Uh, but he was going to take this uh, Sunday off, and he has taken off. I think he was going to go surfing, I think, or snowboarding or something with his kids, but, you know, God bless him. He's got a Sabbath, you know, let the man rest for one Sunday, for the, you know. Uh, but he let me kick this off, so I'm excited. We're kicking off this series called Rhythms. And this is going to be how do we get habituated so that our lives can reflect these truths of this relationship we have with God. And this first week, I want to start off on the practice of personal prayer. Maybe the praise song. That was awesome, by the way. Thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan's like, what are you preaching on this? And I'm like, prayer. And then they just come up with this whole song, Autumn, that was amazing. And it fits the sermon so well. When you're a preacher, you're just like, yes, yes. It's already happening. Thank you. So we're going to talk about personal prayer today. And this is one of the most central, central rhythms of our life if we are going to enter into the life we have in Christ. Now, said simply, personal prayer is about having a conversation with God. And the reality is, is that if you look statistically, a lot of people pray. Atheists pray. I, heard, I read 30% of atheists pray, you know, to some, sometimes and to somebody, okay? Uh, people that say that they're non-religious, non-spiritual, they actually have habits of personal, uh, of prayer, where they'll pray now and then. You know, Paul said in Romans that God has placed a sensus divinitatis, is the Latin, which means a sense of God's reality inside every single person. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we look globally, we see that prayer is a global phenomena. But what makes Christian prayer unique? What makes it unique? Well, this is what makes it unique. Prayer is a conversation with God, and conversation takes two people, Right? And some of you ever been with a me monster, you call him? John, that's John's word. I love that. The me monster is the person that you're just going to sit down and listen. I had somebody approach me this week and say, what do I do? Somebody just keeps talking at me, not with me. And I said, you need to just start exiting the conversation. <laughs> like, you need to break that crazy pattern. Well, a, a true prayer is a conversation where there's listening and there's speaking. 
And because God has given us his word and because he's placed his spirit within us, we can hear what God has to say to us. Um, And so Christian prayer is unique. We have a full conversation as a result of this. Now, that saying that prayer is a conversation with God, it's helpful. It kind of removes the mystery. It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. But sometimes the simplicity of it can be a little bit uh, deceiving. It's kind of like saying marriage is where two people commit to just stay together till they die. That's true. But once you make that commitment, you are launched on a journey that is going to have all kinds of experiences that are built into that journey. And when we enter into a prayer life with God, we are launched on a journey that is going to be, it's like, it's going to involve all kinds of things. And so prayer, yeah, it's a conversation with God, but it's a conversation that is life-changing, that opens us up to a life-changing world. And when we make prayer a priority and a reality to our lives, we begin to change, our, our lives begin to change. We enter into this world. So prayer is an adventure, and, and um, Christian prayer is unique. In fact, it is one of the key marks that shows that you are an apprentice of Jesus. When you read, just take a little core sample, right? Like scientists will just take a little core sample of a stump or something. Like, just take a little core sample of the Gospels. Just, you know, just drill down into Luke. Like, okay, just take a, let's just take five, six chapters. Luke chapter five, the news about Jesus spread and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he withdrew to a desolate place to pray. Luke chapter six, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray and continued in prayer all night. Luke chapter nine, once when Jesus was practicing, uh, was praying in private, people came to him. Luke chapter 9, uh, 28, he went up to the mountain to pray. Luke chapter 11, 1, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. I just looked at five, just a little core sample of five chapters in Luke. Jesus was praying five times. You know, Jesus' life was suffused with prayer. Prayer was at the center point of Jesus' life with God. It was woven into his day-to-day existence. It was part of his morning routine. It was part of his weekly schedule. He made time for it. If he was really busy, and he didn't have time to pray, he stayed up at night, all night sometimes, praying. Prayer was woven into the warp and woof of his humanity, and at the center of his world was personal, private prayer with the Father. And Jesus told his disciples that they too must have the same strong, personal prayer life. And that was our verse today. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus is saying to those who would be his followers that you must have a personal prayer life. It needs to be something, and he says, when you pray, go into your room. That, that word, the Greek doesn't always work, but this is one of those instances where it's like, oh, the Greek actually shows me something here. That word literally means storeroom, and in the homes in that time, there was a room that would be right in the middle of the house in order to keep the temperatures from outside from least affecting it, and there was no windows, so you can get any light in there, and that was where you would store your food. And that's the word that Jesus used. Go into a place where no one can see you, no one even knows you're there, it's absolutely private, People might not even expect you're there. And and that's where you need to pray. Why is it important? Why is it so crucial? Why is Jesus saying that this needs to be the mark 
of his apprentices? Well, because it's so powerful. The power of personal prayer. How do you come to know another person intimately? Well, here's the key. This is a big thing. You need to spend time with them one-on-one. Now, we all know that, right? We all know that. But personal prayer is the way, is a critical way in which we come to know God. I have uh, 4.6,000 friends on Facebook. I decided when I was going to publish my book, I wanted to use Facebook as a way to develop friendships and friendships in order to promote my book. Dave, I know you do it too, Dave, so I know you're smiling, okay? All right. I don't know what to do with all these friends now, right? I mean, I'm hearing about people's lives that I have no, you know, I'll never meet them, I don't, but they're friends, right? <clears throat> it's easy to have the word friend used in a way that just simply means someone that you've heard about, you kind of know very, very cursory, but you will never spend any personal time with them. And the sad thing is, is that many of us have Facebook friendships with God. Like, we want the credit of like, yeah, that's my friend. But if you really look at how much time you spend with God, he's a Facebook friend. Jesus says, be careful. It's easy to want to be associated with God. It's easy to want to say, yeah, God's my friend. It's easy to want to only pray, only speak to God when other people are involved and you're getting some kind of cred for it. See, Jesus is going after the motive here. But we need to pay attention to that. And here's why. William Temple, this is, one, this is an awesome quote, says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Think about that for a second. The unguarded moments when you have nothing to really think about, which, by the way, because of these little electronic devices, those have been pretty much eliminated, right? We always have something to go to. When you're st- I've been this week, I have been intentionally trying not to go to my phone when I'm standing in line, when I'm, you know, I know I'm preaching on prayer, and I notice, like, you know, I don't think I have any moments where I allow myself to have a private moment where I'm not distracted by something. So I'm going to intentionally allow myself not to fill those moments and see where my heart goes. So those moments where you don't have anything you need to think about, where does that internal world go to? Does it go to dreaming about your dream home or what you're going to do in retirement? Or does it go towards, you know, um, any number of things, right? Where does it go? William Temple is saying whatever that is, that's really what you value most. That's where your heart really is. That's what really, really excites you. That's your default setting. And if you want to index your heart, look at what you do when no one's looking. When, what you do in your spare moments, where your mind goes. Um, so, uh, it's, how, uh, it's how we can indicate um, pretty quickly what our true worship is about. Another thing, prayer is powerful because it's how God chooses to do his work. Okay, so not only is it the way in which we connect with God, and by the way, I've been taking those moments, and I've been intentionally connecting. It's been hard. I found out that I've actually developed this kind of distracted soul, so that those moments where I I don't have something to do, 
I've, I've created habits of distraction and self kind of soothing with my phone, and it's taken work to get back to where I can hear God and commune with God in those moments. But you know what? Once I've gotten some traction this week, it's like, oh my gosh, I feel like a piece of my humanity has come back. So, it's how we connect with God. It's also how God chooses to do His work. Uh, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks opens you. God is, God wants to collaborate with His children. God could say like, just sit back, you know, uh, I'm God and I'm just going to do everything. You just sit back here, you know, get a recliner. That's your job in the Christian life. But God wants us to collaborate. God wants us to, to, to engage with Him in His mission work. And one of the primary ways God does that is through prayer. I love this quote by uh, the British um, pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones. says, bombard God, bombard heaven until the answer comes. We have the authority of our Lord for this, have we not? Uh, our Lord taught us to pray like this, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. You know, he goes into Luke chapter 11, 5 to 13. Many of you know the story in which uh, there's, Jesus tells the parable of a man who has somebody come, company comes, and it's like midnight, and he goes over to his neighbor, and he just keeps beating on the door, and he won't stop beating on the door. And the amazing thing is this is God in human flesh telling a story, encouraging us to be annoying with God about what we want to see Him do. Bombard heaven. Our Lord then at the end of this says, if that man who's a sinner got up and finally got some bread for his buddy, what do you think your heavenly Father who loves you will do? It's amazing the unblushing encouragement which Jesus has for us to be praying in faith for things and for God to do stuff. It's amazing. I want to tell you about Andrea's story. Andrea, uh, Andrea is a friend of mine, writer in New York, writes for the Times, uh, actually just moved to Portugal, uh, but a really interesting woman who's done a lot of stuff in design and style, written a few different books on that. Andrea was an atheist few years back, and one day she's in therapy, which was kind of like her religion, and um, doesn't have to be Rick, I know, but it was for her, and she's sitting there, and she just, towards the end of the therapy session, when she was just very relaxed and kind of not really aware of herself, she said, but who's going to save me? And the therapist said, excuse me? And she says, what? She said, you just asked who's going to save me. Andrew said, I did? That's weird. She's like, yeah, that's weird. <sighs> You have to know something about Andrea. This time, Andrea thinks religion is tacky, and Christianity is the tackiest of all religions, okay? A little while later, Andrea is dozing off to bed with her husband, that kind of like sleep where you're kind of talking, falling asleep, and then her husband shakes her and says, what do you mean by that? She says, mean by what? He said, you just asked who's going to save me. She's like, I did? That is weird. She's like, yeah, that is weird. She's like, I don't know. And then Andrea finds this Japanese piece of pottery. And there was something about that piece of pottery. She took that home, and she started writing little wishes and putting it in the pottery. Just little wishes, okay? Suspiciously close to prayer, but she's an atheist, so she doesn't believe in prayer. And then one day, kind of like the way you and I would justify breaking our diet, she begins to think, you know, since God doesn't exist, it wouldn't hurt to say a prayer. There's nothing to pray. Like, it's all just a joke anyway, so I'll just say a prayer. And so she says a prayer. 
And she says, when she said that prayer, it was like finding a baseball on the street and in a whim and as a joke, throwing it up into the air, and to your absolute horror and shock, a giant mitt comes out of the sky and grabs that baseball. She said, she said that prayer, and as soon as she launched that prayer, she fell to her knees in tears because she knew there was a God. The next morning was Sunday. Her husband's also an atheist, a French atheist, the worst kind. (laughs) She's thinking, it's Sunday. People who believe in God go to church. Uh, And her husband was out of town. She's like, I don't want to offend my husband, but maybe I'll just go and see what it's about. She walks into Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, hears the message of how Christ died for her, comes forward and says, this is the God who's been pursuing me. She goes to work back at the Times, Monday morning. Every Monday morning, same person for lunch, her friend. They share everything, what they did during the weekend. Her friend shares, it's her turn. What did you do this weekend? I became a Christian. Her friend's response, she starts crying uncontrollably. And she says, I met you eight years ago, and you were the most stubborn, arrogant atheist, and I never, ever mentioned my faith again, but I've prayed for you faithfully since that moment. I mean, I get choked up thinking about it. There are people that we need to hold up in prayer and not quit and not give up heart, like the illustration of the man who just keeps beating on the door because God wants to develop in us that kind of resilience and trust. And there's things that won't get done unless we pray. So it's how we connect with God. It's how God chooses to do His work. It's also the pathway of personal transformation. The pathway of personal transformation. I love this quote. The very beginning of Calvin's Institutes, John Calvin says this, the very first words out of the gate, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other, the chicken and the egg problem. How do we know ourselves? Well, it's connected to our knowledge of God, and our knowledge of God is connected to our knowledge of ourselves. So Calvin here says that your knowledge of yourself and your knowledge of God are deeply connected. What is Calvin doing? He's just simply drawing off of Augustine's Confessions. If you read St. Augustine's Confessions and you read his uh, Confessions, is his autobiography. And what he does is he goes through his whole story of his life and he prays through it. He prays through when he was a kid and he was rebellious and he and his buddies were part of a gang and they decided to take a bunch of pears and steal them and they weren't even hungry and they destroyed them. And he prays about that. It's like, God, what was going on for me? My heart was so rebellious and lost. And Augustine says this, no one knows what they are made of. This is what he says in the Confessions. No one knows what they're made of except by their own spirit within. If you're you're a person, you know, one of the things about being a person is you alone have access to what's going on inside, you know. Yet there is still some part which remains hidden even from their own spirit, but you, Lord, know everything for you made us. Why does Augustine pray through his whole life so he can know himself? Because he knows that God knows things about himself that he can never know because God knows us better than we can ever know ourselves. And so praying to God about ourselves is a way in which things will be revealed about who you are you have no other access to but by God. Isn't that amazing? No other access to but by God. Or in the words of Dostoevsky, another, I'm just giving you gold right now. These quotes are amazing, aren't they? 
Just kidding. I, I mean, I love this. I love this. Here's the Dostoevsky. I love this Dostoevsky question. Every person has some things they would not tell to everyone, but only to friends. They have other things which they would not reveal even to friends, but only to themselves, and that in secret. But finally, there are still other things which they are afraid to tell even themselves, and every decent person has a considerable number of such things stored away. How do we access those things which we can't and won't tell ourselves? Where are these stored away? The Bible tells us they're stored in our heart, in our soul, in the place that only God has access to. You can pay a therapist a lot of money, and they can work on that, but even the therapist doesn't have direct access. But in prayer, we come before a person who has access to those things. And that's why the psalmist said, search me, O God, Know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be a grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist knows this about God, that God has access to areas of our lives and our hearts. We have no other recourse to get to. So, it is the way in which God transforms us, and God transforms us because He accesses those things. And, he, and, then, and then, once God, we, God accesses those things, God begins in prayer to transform and reorder our loves. Prayer changes because God reorders our loves there. He brings a certain inner peace, and we begin to grow strong, and we become stable to deal with outward challenges and change. And as we begin to pray and see the distractions and the things in our lives, God begins working. I mean, it's very, it's very, this sounds really kind of like, you know, fireworks, but it's pretty mundane. Like, you know, I'll sit down to pray and have a little bit of self-pity, you know, like, you know, why did I get COVID? I could have had this two weeks off of Christmas, you know, or whatever, whatever my thing is, right, or whatever. So I start praying, you know. I mean, come on. A little bit of a joke there. So you feel, you know, maybe whatever it is, you feel like you got some kind of raw deal in life. But as you pray for others, you're reminded of the blessings you have. And as you push yourself to thanksgiving, slowly but surely, your grumbling spirit is confronted. Many of you know what I'm talking about. And suddenly you recognize, and God starts chipping away, you recognize what's going on, and you confess that. You confess your self-pity. And you feel the release, and that's let go. And you walk out of that prayer time, you're lighter. You're changed. You know, the disciples came to Jesus and said, eat something, why don't you eat something? And he said, I have food you don't know about. I have a whole other world where things are happening, and I'm receiving sustenance that isn't just on the material level. And that's my true love. That's where my heart is at. That's my greatest delight, my craving to do the will of the Father. And when you're in love, your desires are turned upside down, and, and sometimes you can stop eating because you want to be with that person. And when you develop a strong personal prayer life, it will transform your desires, and your life will look totally different. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 27, 4, says this, One thing I've asked the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist came to the place where his heart longed for God so much. His, he'd been transformed. And when that begins happening, you are not far from joy. And there are levels of joy in our life that are only going to be released through a solid personal prayer life with God. People who've maintained a consistent prayer life have seen Paul's prayer 
to the Ephesians answered in their own life, and their eyes have been opened, and they begin to see things they couldn't see, and their hearts have been transformed, and they start to realize the riches they have as Christians. They realize that nothing bad in their life cannot be turned for good because of who God is, that the good things can never be taken away from us, and the best things are yet to come, and pretty soon you'll find joy in your life as you begin cementing yourself and praying into the truths that we have in Scripture. And when you look at the trajectory of the Psalms, which if you're new to Christianity, the Psalms is the church's prayer book, okay? It's 150 prayers, okay? When you look at the Psalms, what you see is that it grows closer and closer and closer to this place of pure joy. Psalm 150 just ends. The last Psalm, praise the Lord, praise God in the sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens, praise Him for His mighty deeds, praise Him according to His excellent greatness, praise Him, praise Him, like, Joy, joy. The path to personal joy is prayer. And when you read the biographies of Christians that have come before us from different places, different walks of life, etc., etc., when you read about evangelist Dwight Moody or 18th century British Anglican priest George Whitfield or 17th century mathematician Blaise Pascal or 16th century Spanish nun Teresa Villa, the one thing you see is that their prayer life led to an incredible life of joy. You know, Dwight Moody talks about walking through the streets of New York City in the 1800s, and suddenly, as a result of sustained prayer, he said, suddenly I felt myself lifted up into the love of God. It started pouring into my heart. My heart was pounding like it was going to explode. Or you look at Teresa Villa, who talks about the consolation, quote, the sweetness, the delight, the incomparable greatness, the sweetness the heavenly madness by which she was bewildered and inebriated by God's love. There's an incredible power to personal prayer. All right, so now what? Well, let's talk about the practice of personal prayer. Let's bring the horses into the stable. The practices of personal prayer. How do you pray? And I want to be honest here. Prayer is hard. (laughs) Personal prayer is hard. Maybe you're sitting there and saying, okay, that's all great, Pastor. I've tried prayer, and it's boring. I know. I sit there, my mind gets distracted, and then when I pray, I don't know if God's hearing. It seems like there's a mystery. What is God doing? You know, why doesn't God answer certain cherished prayers? Maybe you're saying, I just feel like a failure when it comes to prayer. I think most of us feel like failures, and I have no desire to, like, guilt you like I've arrived. Prayer has been a journey for me. It is a journey. Personal prayer is a journey. I became a Christian 43 years ago, and I've had different seasons and struggles. I faced intellectual problems. I've sat there and thought, why am I asking God to do something He could just do? I've had times when my prayers seem like they just bounce off the ceiling, like heaven is empty. I've had times where I felt dry. I've had dark nights where it just seems like God has just abandoned me. Like, where are you, God? There's nothing going on in here. I have times where I've got caught up into just simply praying as a pastor when I needed to pray, when everybody would see, because, you know, that's your job, you're the pastor, and there's nothing going on in here on a personal relationship with God, that personal prayer, that, that seat of prayer. But by God's grace, I have stuck with it. And it's a journey. It's a journey, and if you stick with it, you're going to see fruit in your life. But it requires us to constantly go back and reset and reinvent and rethink. There are some things that I've learned. Number one, you've got to have a plan. (laughs) Personal prayer is not the path of least resistance. 
you have got to have a plan. There's lots of different possible plans, okay? There's lots of resources, all right? I'm going to give you, we're going to give you a little plan here today, okay? But you've got to have a plan. Number two, you need to incorporate Scripture because Scripture is how God speaks to us. Remember the conversation, right? There needs to be a conversation. So Scripture is the primary way God speaks to us. There needs to be some kind of incorporation of Scripture, meditating on Scripture so you can hear from God. And then number three, it needs to be daily. There needs to be something in your life which is a daily way in which you are connecting with God in personal prayer where it's about you and God. You and God. And I want to close with a, not just a recommendation, but something I'm hoping we're going to do as a church. Um, and it's, I want to close by something I'm discovering. And it's, it's, it's a practice that we see in the Psalms, and it's, it's evening and morning prayer. Uh, evening and morning prayer. You know, Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's how the psalm ends. And then in Psalm 5, it's a morning prayer. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning, O Lord. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. Eugene Peterson, who in this um, little book, uh, Answering God, the Psalms as Tools for Prayer, says this, Psalm 4, an evening prayer, and Psalm 5, a morning prayer, are strategically placed by our prayer master early in our text at the beginning of Psalms to establish these fundamental rhythms in our lives and get us praying in cadence with God's Word. This whole chapter is called Rhythms, by the way, in this little book. I think this is the best book Eugene Peterson ever wrote, this uh, Answering God. I, um, and he has a whole chapter called Rhythms. I called up Josh. I'm like, did you title this series Rhythms because you read this Eugene? He said, no, I didn't. I'm like, well, there's a great chapter called Rhythms in this Eugene Peterson book. But in it, he talks about God's creating, you know, that there's morning, there's evening, and there's morning, right? And that's part of the rhythm of creation. And so we want to bring our psychotic rhythm of prayer into the rhythm of creation, and that's what we do with evening and morning prayer. By the way, the way you kind of go to bed and the way you wake up is incredibly influential in life. Has anybody else noticed that? Like, if I wake up and I grab my phone and I'm social media, the whole day's over, like done, okay? <laughs> you have to, you're kind of like imprinting your day, right? Okay. Let's just talk about these briefly. Um, evening prayer. It's interesting that the psalmist starts with evening prayer, and, and Peterson wants to say this is in, on, you know, this is on purpose. Um, Psalm 4 marks the transition from the daylight world in which it's easy to suppose that we are in control to the night world in which we relinquish our grips on jobs, people, even thoughts, and experience the will that is greater than ours, the God who answers previous to our asking, who acts previous to our promptings. So you think about it, every night we kind of have a, a petite mort, a little death, a, a time where it's almost like we're dying, right? And then every morning in faith, we, we see ourselves raise up, right? But in that, we relinquish ourselves. And the way you do that, you know, it's one thing to put your body down. It's another thing to put your soul down. And evening prayer is the way in which we take that inner sanctuary of our hopes and fears, and we bring that to God. Psalm 4 says, pray yourself out of the worry and the anxiety so that you're able to sleep. You know, 15, 20 minutes Maybe take out Psalm 4, take whatever it is that's causing you to sigh, whatever it is that's bothering you, and just bring that to God and release that to God in an act of faith. Lord, I'm concerned about this. Take this. Please take care of it. You know what it is. You know this better than me. Just a releasing, a breathing out. 
And we start with that kind of grace. And then I love this. Then we have Psalm 5. Psalm 5 prays our reentry into the waking world's daylight. Morning prayers prepare for our action. Uh, passivity in which we let God work His will in us is primary, but activity in which we obey the will working in us in the world is also essential. So Psalm 5 bridges the passivity of grace into the activity of obedience. Evening prayer is all about grace and passivity. Lord, I just receive. You give to your beloved even in their sleep. And then in morning prayer, eagerly do I seek you. I bring my request to you. You hit the ground, right, with morning prayer, and you are co-laboring with the God who's already been working through the night, you know, creating salamanders and, you know, having the ocean. God's always working. And so evening and morning prayer is really about patterns of realizing that we respond to the grace of God with passivity of receptivity to God and then activity in which we join with Him as co-laborers. I love this quote, prayer is rebellion against the status quo, and Psalm 5 is all about that, right? Lord, you know, uh, I, 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 I give my sacrifice, I bring my request, and then I watch. What are you going to do, God? Right? That's that kind of like, let's get this done. All right. So, let's bring, bring the horses to the stable. Will 2022 be any different? Will we just simply look like 2021 in our personal lives? Will our eyes be open to see things like Paul prayed for the Ephesians? Will we come to know God more intimately? Will we go into a deeper journey and expect to see new layers of joy, new ways in which God is working? Will we pray ourselves into 2022 and see our lives transformed and see certain habits and things that people already know about us, sadly, but we don't? See those changed. Oh, that we might know the love of God, which surpasses understanding. Will we begin to have that kind of knowledge, which surpasses just simply truth claims and propositions to where it's residing in our heart of hearts? May it be.